Hello, it's Julie Bindle, and this week I'm speaking with the journalist Julie Zago. It's one thing being kind of derided as a transphobe in Pink News, but it's another thing to have that on the letters page of the newspaper I write for. She is a freelancer who, for the past 25 years, has written as both a staffer and a weekly columnist for the Melbourne-based The Age newspaper. But something went terribly wrong, which led to her being sacked last week. And it was, of course, to do with gender ideology. Julie wanted to research and write about paediatric transitioning. In other words, transitioning children, which she did. And it was a carefully argued, meticulously researched piece. And then her editor decided not to run it. Here's her story. So tell me, if you would, a little bit about yourself, about your history, about your work and who you are. I was a lawyer in a previous life, but I don't talk about that very much. I fell into journalism by accident and from the beginning my my home, my intellectual home was the Age newspaper in Melbourne. So it's it was it's still Melbourne's daily broadsheet in in sort of sensibility, although it has gone tabloid in form. And I started writing op-ed pieces, doing features. I got a job on staff. I was there for 12 years and then took a voluntary redundancy. And then I was pretty chuffed two years later to get invited back to be a columnist. I was fortnightly and then for the last two years I've been weekly. I have been writing for a long time on feminist issues. I'm, I write about immigration, things like that. I'm of Jewish background. I am a public school zealot. So I guess you could say I'm, I'm, I'm of the broad left. And the age is a kind of a, a sort of a left-leaning to liberal centre-ish, soft, le- soft left, I'd say, newspaper. And when you say you've been writing about feminist issues for a long time, what kind of thing interests you within that? Well, I think the sort of things that pretty much track the, tracking the female life cycle. So when I started writing, I suppose I was a 30-something woman, so I cared a lot about sexual politics and then parenting, motherhood. I think you could say that I'm, in the last few years, I, I was probably more of a bit of a dissenting feminist voice, a little bit. I, I tended to take an unorthodox position on things like, I suppose, a kind of a cult of female fragility. You know, the idea that that institutions, universities and places like that should always be kind of saving us from various things, kind of puritanism in the workplace. I think I, and, and to some aspects, to the more, I think, excessive moments in the Me Too movement. But I think, but, but all along, I was known, known as, a, as a feminist writer and I think it was in that space where I probably did much of my best work. I think you and I have got quite a lot in common, actually, in... The sense that, you know, I've got Jewish heritage, I was a researcher and fell into journalism, didn't go to journalism school, 
started writing op-eds for The Guardian because I'm a feminist campaigner, so it was to get the message out. And then just realised I could do it and loved all the aspects of interviewing and researching and telling stories that hadn't been told. And also I'm a bit of a dissenting voice when it comes to orthodox feminism. So I can I can see similarities and I think that we don't toe the line, is that fair to say? Probably fair to say. I mean, I think there's a lot of differences between us. I believe roughly that sex work is work. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. I'm not, however, sex positive, which I may have been in my younger <laughs> years. If that, if you can accept that distinction. So, what's the difference? What's the difference? Tell me. I'm interested in this. I'm not sure. You'd probably be be better able to nail those definitions. I think sex positive has got a kind of exuberance about it. The term that this is that sex is a a means of genuine empowerment for women, and I'm not sure. I've been reading a lot of stuff lately. I mean, the UK feminists lately have been just doing my head in with the kind of stuff you've been putting out. We just seem, our intellectual landscape just seems so arid by comparison. I mean, I, I thought, I, I think that Louise, Louise Perry just did a brilliant job in her, her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. I'm not sure I agree with her conclusion, but I think she laid it all out really well these people like Mary Harrington I mean raising ideas <laughs> that yeah. I would never cook up and yeah. uh, you know that that challenged me hurt my head a bit you know well and and me too and actually Louise who I've known for a long time she lays it out brilliantly as you say and I respect her as a campaigner against male violence she's got a very feminist approach to how men do it why men do it and then I vehemently disagree with her conclusion Mary Harrington, Mary Harrington is a brilliant thinker. Again, I like her. She's kind of out there, quite eccentric, which I love, and is anti-abortion. But they're putting stuff out and they're actually making us think. And I can, I can cope, and I'm sure you can, with the fact that we disagree on the sex industry and, and how we fix the problems inherent to it. Yeah, we can, we can deal with that. We we can and I and I, I for a whole lot of reasons I have been highly envious of the intellectual scene in the UK and particularly the feminist scene. I just adore Kathleen Stock. I mean I I just I just found her book Material Girls a, a revelation. I lap up just everything she writes. I I, I read you. And I love I love your journalism and I and I love your commentary. You make me laugh <laughs> a lot. Kathleen Stock makes me laugh a lot as well. I absolutely adore to the point of probably unhealthy Sonia Soda in the Observer. Yeah. And said so I suppose eventually we'll get to my situation, but it it got to the point where I I didn't understand why I couldn't write the sort of stuff that she writes in a similarly soft left newspaper. But I couldn't. We, we, we're not there in Australia. We're coming from so way behind. Did you follow what happened to Hadley Freeman, for example? I remember I heard the interview she did with the BBC Women's Hour and I remember listening to it feeling that there was just an uncanny similarity in our stories. It was 2021 in September that she pretty much stopped with The Guardian 
and then she moved over to the Times very early, well, January this year. I did watch all that play out and I, I guess with a bit of a sense of foreboding and, and dread to some degree. I had the sense that I was probably on a collision course at the age and that there was a sort of an inevitability about things. And I think some of the editors told me that they discussed at one point that it would be, wouldn't it be tragic if I, if I ended up a Suzanne Moore, for instance. I don't think I set out to do that, but it became harder and harder, culminating in the events of the last few days. But with Hadley Freeman, it's extraordinary. She even started at The Guardian around the same time I started at The Age. She had really similar issues back then. So she had, let's call them Israel issues mm-hmm. at the paper where, and, and I had some of those. I, I would have, I, I did, I wrote editorials leaders for a while and I would have people saying things like, are you sure you're objective enough to write this particular editorial on Israel, that kind of thing. And so, so that, was, that was difficult for a while. I would also be writing things pushing back a lot against pressure from political Islam, against our our secular space, pressing for measures that might undermine women's rights, gay rights. Same here, and I've been called Islamophobic, racist, all of that, and the anti-Semites kind of double up on that because they take particular interest of those of us that might have, might be, let's just say fight anti-Semitism, whether we are of Jewish heritage or not. If you dare to speak out about political Islam, this made-up word, this politicised word, Islamophobia, just immediately comes in as though as though religion is all of a sudden a race. It's, it's just crazy. And we're supposed to accept what happens to women and girls, which we would never with Orthodox Judaism. Did things start to get tricky? I was certainly called Islamophobic. That was definitely out there at the time. I'm really nostalgic for those days. Yeah, I mean, too, right. Me too. God, God, at least we could deal with it then. I was put on Islamophobia watch and it was very annoying because I was working alongside women of formerly of Muslim faith who wanted to expose the misogyny. But it's better than walking through a crowd of 150 screaming idiots telling you that you're a Nazi, which is what we get with the trans stuff but carry on with your journey because this is horrifically fascinating so so with all these issues i would say with the political islam issues the private school issues occasionally kind of israel issues i would say that it was it was more a matter of editor a bit of editor shopping occasionally nothing would nothing could have could have prepared me for the fact that ground, the next ground zero in the culture wars would be the definition of a woman as an adult human female. Nothing could have prepared me for that. So talk me through when you first started engaging with this as a writer as opposed to thinking about it or talking with your friends. What was the first moment? <laughs> I'm a bit embarrassed to say. It was when the Reading's Bookshop in Melbourne cancelled you many years after the fact. That was beyond belief. It it was. I think when I wrote about that, I was certainly not... I hadn't fallen down the rabbit hole as far as trans issues go. I, I, took, I, took, I took a very compassionate view of 
both sides. I could see that the trans activist side was trying to muzzle the, let's call them gender critical side. I know you don't like that term, but, and I, I sort of, I, I wrote about how these two claims are, are, are irreconcilable. One is, one is the claim that trans women are women and that a person's subjective reality ought to triumph and the other one is an objective reality-based view about sex and I think I said that these these two views are irreconcilable but we don't we, we don't have to one doesn't have to in a sense obliterate the other that identity politics doesn't have to be played as this blood sport Interestingly, yeah. I saw that I saw that piece referred to on Twitter the other day as me at the time being part of the Be Kind Brigade. I mean, I didn't know that you'd written it. I've just called it up now. I've just seen it. And I missed it at the time. I don't know why I missed it at the time. But I think it's perfectly reasonable to actually go into such a contentious issue by weighing up the pros and cons and the kind of logic and madness of the argument. And and I think that that's one of the brilliant things about feminism and about being able to write about feminist issues is that we almost learn as we're writing and then the response from our readers. In terms of the dynamics of this debate, would me writing that article make, you know, make me qualify as a turf or...? What, what I've come to learn over these years is that all you have to say just like Martina Navratilova just like Joe Rowling like all of us all you have to say is well maybe women's rights matter and maybe trans women shouldn't take precedence and maybe there's a debate to be had about single sex spaces all you have to do is say that and you go straight from that to Nazi not even a mid-range dictator like Pol Pot straight to Nazi Yes, right. Okay, I'm relieved to hear you say that because that's the way I've been reading it. And, yeah. you know, you start to doubt yourself and you think, well, could I, could I have put this argument differently? Would that cover me in a sense? But you're right, okay, so that the paradigm is trans women are women. And so if you yeah. say, well, but hang on, we're talking about a male-bodied person, then that's already, you know, then, then, you, are, yeah. then, you, then you are already on... on on the other side of this. The only way that we can do it is by saying we are cis women and they are women. And that's where we're moving. No, that's where we're moving. That's where we're, but, but we're not because we've, we've, we've held back the tide. That article looks to me completely and utterly reasonable to the point of where the actual transphobes, the extremists, and we've got plenty of them here, although a tiny proportion compared to the trans extremists, they would think, ah, wet, liberal, won't nail her colours to the mast. But I think it's a perfectly reasonable... It's, the, the article itself looks to me almost like a question. Like, well, can't we actually deal with this in a way that isn't full-on war and humiliation? Yes. I think nothing much happened until a previous editor at The Age commissioned me to write a story and I mean I'm embarrassed to say how long ago it was it was in the aftermath of the first Bell versus Tavistock case 
So it was when the High Court, so I think it was December 2020, said that kids under the age of 16 couldn't consent to puberty blockers. Now, she she just said that to me in the sense of, oh, here's an issue. I, I, it seems like the UK is going in a different direction to us. We appear to have something called the affirmation model in terms of how to deal with gender dysphoric children, how to treat them. Uh, maybe, our, maybe our model is, is the right one. I don't know, but it's an interesting issue, isn't it? And at this point, I really just didn't know anything about this area, about paediatric transition whatsoever. And I said, yeah, that sounds interesting. So I guess famous last words. And then when I started researching that subject, I started getting deeper and deeper into it. I, I was still very uncertain. I found, I found that I kind of couldn't find my footing in it easily. We have, a very, we have a very prestigious children's hospital who seem to be leaders in the field and, and I'm certainly not criticising them here or anything, but I was terribly uncertain about writing anything that might cast doubt on the work that they do in that gender unit. The daughter of two doctors, this was, this was a, a difficult, difficult thing for me and none of this debate had really reached Australia at all at that point. We had this court ruling from the UK, I think. I think Finland had started to look at their, their settings for puberty blockers. Their health authorities had started looking at this, but that was about it. So I didn't do anything. I just read a lot and spoke to people. And then, and in the meantime, continued to write, uh, write my weekly column. And I, I think I made... I made one foray into it at one point, but didn't say any more than, I suppose, three, three lines about paediatric transition. And then I gave the piece, the previous editor who had commissioned the piece had to step down for personal reasons. And the new editor looked at this piece and said that there was, it was fine, it was good, there was nothing wrong with it but that he couldn't run it under my byline because there would be a perception of bias. As, as opposed to fact-finding, as opposed to actually journalism and researching an issue. He didn't even get into the substance. He just said, he said, it's not about the piece, the piece is fine, but it is about the perception of bias. So in this sense, I probably have to, I have to go back a little bit to, I wrote a piece, I think back in 2021 in April, where there was a, there's been a bit of trouble in our Greens political party. So in Victoria, here in the state where I live, and there's been a few dissenters within the party on issues to do with trans rights. Are you in the Greens? No. 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 There there were a couple of people who had, who had spoken out internally about issues to do with the affirmation model. Here in Victoria, we've got a conversion therapy law that is a very harsh one. That means that if a psychiatrist has, is found that they have tried to change somebody's gender 
identity and that that has caused damage. It can attract a jail term of up to 10 years. What? So let me just unpick that. So I want to to give you a scenario because I I understand what conversion therapy is because I went undercover as an unhappy lesbian who wanted to reunite with her church and her parents. And I went to Colorado and found a a place that specialises in making lesbians straight. And it was utterly horrific, even with this persona. And it was that they were trying to tell me I was damaged, I'd been born wrong, I'd been sexually abused, my parents did this. And I exposed it. Then when I look at what the detransitioned young people I meet actually needed at the time, they presented with a myriad of issues anorexia, self-harming, sexual abuse from childhood, autism. And they're immediately affirmed. Well, they then went through irreversible hormone and surgical treatment. But what they needed was therapy. What they needed was just to talk through the issues to see how it ended up. That would be criminalised now with a with a penalty of up to 10 years in jail is that right not necessarily i think the real impact of those laws and i think there is there are exceptions for therapeutic treatment that's needed for health reasons and so on i think the real impact is just a chilling effect it's going to be driving out people who are inclined not to take a, a, an affirmative approach right who who would be looking at psychotherapy, say, as a first-line treatment yeah. for gender, for dysphoric yeah. young people or kids or yeah. whatever. So this person, one of the people in the Greens, was saying that he was concerned about that, that he knew plenty of, plenty of lesbians and detransitioners who couldn't get, couldn't get proper therapeutic care in Victoria and that he knew he had a lesbian who had narrowly avoided transitioning because she didn't she didn't go to an affirmative therapist and he talked about the need to balance the rights of trans people with the rights of women and same-sex attracted people and that there was a conflict of rights and that it was up to political parties to ethically and compassionately find solutions to this conflict of rights. So these were the sort of people coming from incredibly reasonable positions with impeccable social justice credentials. And they were sort of subjected to a number of kind of Orwellian interventions on the part of the Greens in Victoria. And, and that keeps going on. That, that scandal, yep. that scandal rocks on. And in the meantime, I think at the time when this story broke, there was a petition within the Greens to discipline this person who had been caught making these remarks in some private Facebook group and those remarks had been leaked. And somehow I just waited and thought, and, and thought, oh, somebody's got to defend this poor guy. So I did and I wrote a piece. That was the piece in which I mentioned that these issues to do with paediatric transition were tough, that the stuff he was talking about, the, the, the kind of risk to gay people with affirmative therapies and that that was that there that wasn't nothing that he was saying something that was a real and you know legitimate debate I mentioned Kira Bell's case and the Tavistock and so on it wasn't it wasn't all that different to 
pieces that I'd written in the past, but it had a headline on it that said, trans rights should not automatically trump other rights. I mean, how fair is that? Just how fair is that? Yes. And so this caused, I mean, as always, what happens is the, the age readers themselves become rapturous that, that someone is saying this stuff. So the kind of, the, in terms of the comments under the piece and so on and the letters to the paper, they all always stack up in my favour, you know. But out there in Twitter land, I was very quickly chopped liver and certain trans activists got very upset. A couple who had given me interviews for the, the big piece redacted their interviews and there was a articles appeared about me in places like Pink News, which at the time I, I know, I know, I know. And at the time I just thought, my gosh, I mean, I actually had to take a sleep, sleeping tablet that night because I thought I had trouble kind of getting my head around the fact that this was, this was how I was thought of now. I thought in these communities where communities that I, who I had advocated for for so long, you know, I've long, long time advocate for the right of gays and, les- gays and lesbians and so on. And so my self-image really sort of took a, took a hit at least for a while. And then I, and then I realised that, that Pink News was, was no, things had moved on and Pink News was no longer the gay and lesbian press. Yeah, I mean, but, but it, it hurts because, you know, I've had 40 years of campaigning to end men's violence against women and girls. And then I just became a bigot and a transphobe and nothing else. Nothing else mattered. Your history, your reputation, all the work that you've done, the stances that you've taken, the principles that you've adhered to. Nothing wiped. That's it. It's hell. It's hellish when that happens. Yes. That was, in fact, the piece where there was a line about, about people who have not surgically transitioned being in female spaces and the reference to people was there because my earlier reference to males was considered verboten. So that was a significant event. Then I, then I found out that there was a detransitioner who was suing her psychiatrist in Sydney. And I wrote that up as a straight news story. And the letters page of The Age the day after the story was very positive. A lot of people were, a lot of people were saying, oh, good, how good that this issue is aired and that this story has run in the paper and we really need to talk about how we, how we deal with gender dysphoria and so on and whether people are being transitioned too quickly, etc. And as I understand it, that made things even worse. So the mood in the newsroom was even edgier after that letters page. And I don't know whether people had rung around and tried to try to rally some other voices, whatever. But it turns out that the day after that, the letters were all negative and that was fine. But there was one that talked about the author's transphobic rhetoric. The author being me, you know, having written this news piece. And at that point, I got pissed off because I thought, well, it's one thing being kind of derided as a transphobe in pink news or on Twitter, but it's another thing to have that on the letters page of the newspaper I write for. I was then told that I kind of couldn't write any columns on 
anything to do with the, the trans issue because now I was reporting on the, tran on the trans issue and this trans piece that had been commissioned was in the pipeline and so therefore I, I couldn't report as well. And that, and then the decision on the trans piece kept not being made. And then we yeah. had the rally, we had the Let Women Speak rally in Melbourne. And essentially, essentially I, I, I was then in a position where I, I couldn't commentate on these matters, even though trans issues were, were kind of the top headline issues in Melbourne and in the age just about every day. And so I couldn't commentate. And then the piece itself, the, the piece on paediatric transition was knocked back by the editor because of me. And in the end, I, I just found myself completely muzzled. So, you know, that, that situation that, that Hadley describes where you feel like there's actually nothing you can usefully write about. I think part of a part of the dynamic that was happening in the background is that I told the editors that I had attended the Let Women Speak rally. I said that I had gone along as a journalist, which is true. I went along. I, I didn't participate. I didn't even clap. I think at one moment I laughed. I went away. I went along with my notepad and my pen in journalistic mode, thinking that this might be a good event that would give me some colour if I wanted to. I was thinking of writing a book on trans issues and so I sure got colour because that was the day when the neo-Nazis zig heiled on the steps of our Victorian parliament and but I, I told my editors this that I had attended the rally and that was also that seemed to also be raised by journalists who media reporters who had reported on my falling out and then sacking at the age as a reason why my piece wasn't run, that I had somehow nailed my colours to the mast by, mast by attending this rally. So this was basically their analysis or their take after you were sacked. Well, she brought it on herself. Look at what she's been doing. Not sure if I put it that, that hard, but it certainly was sort of offered as a rationalisation for... It, it, there was a suspicion about what was I doing at the rally. You know, I said that I was going to report, and, and so it's the same issue, really. Well, you're not going yeah. to report. You're a turf. You've outed yourself as a turf. I think is the logic, right? So, of course, you can't... Your name can't be trusted on this piece about paediatric transition, no matter how balanced, how meticulously reported and so on it is. And it is. That piece is. Yeah. I subsequently published the piece on my Substack that I started up and I sent out an email and I put around some social media posts saying that I would be writing this up, I would be writing this Substack and on this Substack here's the here's a piece that the age wouldn't run on transition on youth gender transition and I'll be writing more on gender identity politics generally something to the effect of without a committee of work journalists redacting words they deem incendiaries such as male. Now, subsequently, my, my editor decided that that was me disparaging the masthead, as he put it, and the 
people who work there and he sacked me. How did it happen? Talk me through where you were, what he said and what you felt. I think I think by this stage I had just felt that this was an inevitability one way or another. He, in terms of just the mechanics, he he was over, he's overseas at the moment. He tried to call me several times. I didn't realise, I didn't hear the phone and it went through to voice message and he just sent a text essentially saying, I'm concerned by this remark that you made and I we obviously can't have our columnists disparaging the paper so we won't be commissioning any more columns from you. And look, it is it is tremendously sad for me because this paper really has been my intellectual home. I feel like I have grown up myself in this in in the age. It's been twenty five years on and off that I have contributed or worked there. So it's a very sad ending for me. But I definitely this issue had had brought me to the point of very almost depression. I'm not really the depressive type. I'm a bit I'm anxious, but I'm not necessarily depressive. But I there were times when I I was just I was just felt really really so frustrated and just gagged. Just I would have to sort of write a column every week and sometimes I just felt like I was manufacturing other stories because this incredible event that had happened in Melbourne, this thing that for all sorts of reasons would be smack in my brand, as we say. I mean, he were Nazis, <laughs> he were feminists, he were trans activists. And I I couldn't write about it. Look, they did say that I, I my... I was kind of given sort of reluctant permission to try and write something after the rally. And there was a very strong line at the paper that the Nazis had turned up to protect Posey Parker because she was a member, she was associated with the far right. So that's why they were there. And this and, and Posey Parker is very clearly associated with the far right, I was told. I think that that has turned out to be a trumped-up accusation. Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're night and day, me and Posey Parker. She's anti-feminist, I'm a feminist. She blames feminism for where we are now. I know we're the only ones that resisted. She will go on Fox News and say that the and Matt Walsh is a great ally. I think that he's an abomination who wants to strip us of our rights. She's not on the far right. She will absolutely go anywhere where there is a kind of critique of trans women and women and a hatred of gender ideology, even if they're actual bigoted transphobes. So we're night and day. But she's not on the far right. The Nazis did not turn up to protect her. They hate us. Whether that whether we're Posey Parker or whether we're Julie Bindle or whoever, they hate us. So of course they didn't turn up to protect her bullshit yes so I mean we had uh, that would that that was the line and it was the line that actually ended up getting putting a member of the Liberal Party which is the opposition party in Victoria a woman called more redeeming at the Member of Parliament on a collision course with her party so and in the immediate aftermath of the rally our Premier Daniel Andrews essentially put out a tweet and made comments that 
were unambiguously smeared all the women who attended that rally as bigots, that's the most generous interpretation of his words, or effectively Nazis themselves. You could interpret, you can interpret his, his remarks even to mean yeah. that. And so, and, and look, I was at that rally and we know the kind of people who turn up, right? Lesbians, women of the left, a, a big yeah. spag, you know, yeah. smattering yeah, yeah. of women in hijabs, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I was kind of under pressure in writing this piece to, to sort of adhere to that line. I wrote, I'm not selling myself very well, but I wrote, again, a, a, a piece that wasn't, I agree, wasn't very good. But then again, I was, I was, I was being told kind of what I, how I had to see it. Which is what happened to Hadley. This is exactly what happened to Hadley. She was told to write about her children or she was told to follow a particular line that she didn't adhere to. She felt like she had to just write columns outside of her expertise or interest. She was gagged. Yes, essentially. Um, and I was told that that particular column had turf rhetoric. And by this, and I kept pushing, I kept pushing optimistically and I kept having columns spiked. So I was, I was gagged in my columns. They wouldn't run my reporting, my, my reported pieces. And so in the end, it was, it was, I don't know, it was, I wouldn't say a relief to get sacked, but there was a, there was a breakdown of trust on both sides of that relationship, I think. Did you reply to his text? I did. I said that I thought respect had to run both ways. I wouldn't have necessarily spoken out in the media, but he gave an interview to The Guardian saying that he had discussed with me in detail why the piece was unsuitable for the age. He implied in his comments that the piece wasn't accurate, balanced and nuanced. And it was an implication because he talked about how the age, and it's true, and it's true, but this is the tragedy. The age is not The Guardian, I have to say. And the most egregious offender in this area is the ABC, our equivalent of the BBC. Yep. So the age, I would, I would say that the age is conflicted. It won't, it won't report on the heart of the issue. So what I am incredibly critical of is that it won't actually scrutinise the laws that have been passed by our state governments that have basically eroded sex as a category. They won't do any of that kind of work, mm. but they they do they have reported very well on Holly's Holly Lawford Smith's troubles. So Holly Lawford Smith is our version of Kathleen Stock, and her troubles at Melbourne University that have been ongoing, but that really peaked in the aftermath of the rally, and they have done some very good reporting on the conflagration in the Victorian Greens over this issue as well. So that. I mean, there is hope. They, they, they do try. They do try, but I just think it's a, it's a very conflicted, yeah. newsroom and same old. I mean, what will you do now? How long ago was it that you were sacked, and and what what are you planning for the future? I was sacked just a few days ago, so if I seem a bit shell shocked, that's why. It's it's horrific. It's this story is terrible. 
Do you have any plans? I mean, obviously, you'll be snapped up. There'll be those that want you already. But do you? can you think straight at the moment about the future? I, I would have to get a publisher. I can help you with that. That's good, because the scene in Australia is very, as I said, very different and very far behind the UK. But so I would love to, I would love to write a book if possible. And I have started a Substack, the, the infamous Substack, that won't have the copy redacted by work journos. We'll see. But I mean, I keep wondering whether there was some way that I could have avoided this outcome. But I think, in, I think really once you once you see something, you you can't unsee it. Once you see fundamental fundamental issues of not just fundamental philosophical issues like who are we as a human species, but questions of in- institutional trust, like what happens, what happens to the institutional trust in the media when the media doesn't report what's going on, what governments are doing. You couldn't have avoided it. And at least, you know, with this hell that I've been through since 2004, I've become pretty expert in it. You couldn't have avoided it. And you will go on to bigger and better things, of course, but it feels terrible at the time. I know that. You have got loads of support and you've got masses of support here over in Turf Island. I hate the word turf and I don't use it usually even as a joke, but I do think Turf Island is very funny. And, you know, you... You'll, thank you for sticking your head above the water and for refusing to back down from the truth. And it's cost you greatly, but it will reward you even better. And we're all really grateful to you for that. And I'm so, so sorry that you've been through this and that you're going through this. But, you know, it'll feel it'll feel better as it goes on, because more and more of our institutions are drawing back from being captured in the way that they have. Australia's in a bad place at the moment, but, you know, we will survive and it's it's terrible. I'm so sorry. Thank you. I mean, I think somebody had to, somebody on the left had to blow themselves up. There is, because otherwise the, 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 the Labour governments, the activists and so on, they, they want, they need to be able to push paint any sort of pushback as coming from the Christian right, the right wing and so on. But this one, unfortunately, the blame for this madness is the left. This one is on the left. And so it's the left that has to step up and fix it. And you guys have been giving me inspiration for a long time. Well, it's such a pleasure to finally get to speak to you. I've been reading your stuff for so long. And ironically, missed that column where you mentioned my name. I would have been so thrilled. Yeah, come full circle. Isn't that terrible? Julie Zago is a big name. She's a star columnist. She's a masthead reporter. And just as they did with Hadley Freeman, Suzanne Moore and others, just decided to sacrifice her on the altar of queer ISIS, the trans lunatics. Thank you for listening.